My people, my people, my people, this is Jay from Push Black, and welcome to Season 2 of Black History Year. You know, in everything that we do at Push Black, we're always asking, how do we work together to make things better for our community? And in this season of the Black History Year podcast, we're stepping up to that challenge in an even bigger way. We'll have episodes that will open eyes to new ideas around reparations, criminal justice system, and the ways Black cooperative economics can help us strengthen our communities and build wealth. And we're going to reconnect to the beautiful parts of our culture found in our food, our spiritual practices, and even ancient history. That's 12 episodes for y'all. You asked for it and you're getting twice as much Black history as the first season. So make sure you tell your folks that Push Black is back at it. Coming up, I'm sitting down with the amazing Insei Ufat, the executive director of the New Georgia Project, where she's getting eligible voters registered and participating in democracy. We know there's a lot going on around voting rights. Insei is exactly the person to get us focused on what's important. It was a great conversation, and I'm really happy to have her with us to kick off season two. But first, let's get caught up on how we got to this place. It seemed like we had a real shot those short few years after the Civil War. With the passage of the 15th Amendment, we finally had the right to vote. Some scholars estimate that 1,500 Black people were elected to office in America between 1863 and 1877. But Black power always receives white pushback. Any protections we had against voter intimidation were squashed with the Compromise of 1877. It gave the South the legal go-ahead to do what it pleased. And what it pleased was our civic demise. Though they couldn't repeal the 15th Amendment, they could pass laws creating poll taxes, grandfather clauses, literacy tests, all methods to effectively disenfranchise Black people throughout the South. Lynchings especially became an effective tool of terror suppression and disempowerment. Not until the 1965 Voting Rights Act did things once again shift. The hard-won passage of the Voting Rights Act immediately decreased racial discrimination in voting. The suspension of literacy tests and the assignment of federal examiners created a path for nearly a quarter of a million black citizens to register in 1965 alone. Millions more followed, fundamentally reshaping the American electorate. But as always, whites pushed back and have spent the last 60 years attempting to dismantle the law. In 2020, the effort might be different, but the impact is the same. So what does voter suppression look like now? Early lines in Texas grew quickly, people waiting hours to cast their ballots. 34,948 vote-by-mail ballots were disqualified or thrown out. There have been technical issues. People have been canceling their absentee ballots to show up to vote in person because they don't trust the mail-in process here in Georgia. A judge sided with the Republican governor to limit the number of absentee drop-off boxes to one per county despite the pandemic. It's voter ID laws. It's purging the voter rolls. It's registration restrictions like having to show documents to prove your citizenship. It's limiting early voting locations. It's gerrymandered districts. 
its felony restrictions and setting up new poll taxes. Don't be fooled. It's a mistake to think voter suppression only matters every four years around the presidential election because voter suppression breathes in our state and local elections. Judges, school boards, district attorneys, these are the elections that have a huge impact on how we and our families live our lives every day. Yes, voter suppression is real, which leads us to the question, if black votes didn't matter so much, do you think people would be fighting so hard to stop us? In a democracy, the right to vote is the most powerful non-violent tool we have. Many people march and protested for the right to vote. Some gave a little blood and others lost their lives. The right to vote is precious, almost sacred. It should not matter whether you're black or white, Latino, Asian American, or Native American, we should be able to participate in the democratic process. What does black liberation look like for you? To me, black liberation looks like a world where one's race in no way is an impediment to achieving all of the things that one's mind can conceive. I love that. So where do those limits come from currently? The Gen Zers, the Zoomers on my staff will remind me that race and gender are social constructs <laughs> while also fully acknowledging that they are used to oppress to deny people opportunity. Where does it come from? I think the extreme hoarding of wealth, the extreme hoarding of capital, um, the extreme hoarding of resources, like both natural and human, require there to be an underclass, require there to be someone whose labor uh, is exploited. And Based off of the history of the world, it seems as if darker skinned people suffer most. You can even look at like the caste system in a place like India, where the Dalit are considered the untouchables and it's the dark skinned Indian folks, right? So I don't know what like the original plan was, but there is a long history across the globe of the hoarding of capital requiring violent abuses of dark-skinned people. Absolutely. And so in order to achieve the, the vision of Black liberation that you laid out, it seems this system that allows for this amassing of wealth would have to be um, radically transformed in, in certain ways, right? Absolutely. Um, I also think that it requires people to understand their role in government their role in the public expression of democracy or whatever form it takes wherever they find themselves on this globe. I think it also requires us to understand that our fortunes, our fates are linked. I think it requires us to understand that borders are not real. <laughs> They're man-made, right? And so you can't have a natural disaster in Northern California that is polluting the air and destroying the trees 
and polluting the water and it not affect people across the border in Oregon and it not affect the people across the border in Canada. I appreciate your um, inclusion of this idea of a linked fate in there. I think that's something that's super important that specifically for Black folks, we've definitely felt in many times throughout history here for a um, number of reasons. I would like to think that that sentiment is coming back in, in some ways. What are your thoughts on that? Do you see the same thing? I absolutely see the same thing. I think that, you know, given the moment that we're in with this pandemic, that, you know, from everything from mutual aid societies, even like susus are making a comeback where people are, you know, sharing money, sharing, saving money together as a community. You know, I can't get through like proper updates on rap beef on Instagram without scrolling against another person who's like started their own organic farm in their backyard. And I love it all. Co-ops and CSAs and sharing food and sharing resources, parents talking about potting up and educating their children together in small groups. There's nothing that focuses the mind like a direct threat to the people you love and your way of life. And so with over 200,000 Americans dead and clarity that our current government and the people who lead it do not care about us. I think that folks are finding ways to take care of one another. And I we see example after example after example of that over the past six, seven months. Push Black is nonprofit. We're nonpartisan. We're not repping anybody but Black people. So can we achieve Black liberation through America's two-party system? I don't know if liberation is a, a function of any political system, per se. I think it's, it's, it's all of the things, right? I think it's the narrative piece, right? The stories that we tell about ourselves, the stories that we tell about the world that we want to live in. It's absolutely the political piece. I think it's vital and essential and central to it, but it doesn't make up the whole change that we need in order to see liberation. I think it's an economic organizing opportunity as well. America's way too big to only have two political parties. So like just dispense with that period right now. Our neighbors to the North, right? In Canada, much smaller country, right? There are more people who live in California than who live in the entire country of Canada. And they have a multiple party system. They have a parliamentary system of government where there's an opportunity for minority voices to be represented at every level of government. The two-party system is insufficient just for the day-to-day -day operation and maintenance of a democracy of this size. So it absolutely is insufficient for the kind of liberation that we are talking about for Black folks. You know, what we, we know from history as well is that this system has failed Black folks continuously. Talk to us about your thoughts on why Black people should continue to participate in the system and the process that has resulted in perpetuating so much misery on our community. What value is it? Because, you know, it is ultimately the system we currently live in. So in your work, obviously, you advocate for a certain type of participation. Could you talk to us about the values that you and your organization see in that? 
are we talking about like the electoral system? Because I don't think that withdrawing is the answer. I, I don't think that a passive approach is what gets us to something that approaches or looks like justice or liberation. Like we ain't just going to strike our way towards building something that works for us. So my example that um, I've been using lately with some of our younger organizers is you got roommates and it's four of y'all in the, in the, in this like cute condo or whatever. And two of your roommates are disgusting. One of them is all right. And you're the person that is like cleaning all the time. Right. And then you just say, you know what? I'm done. I withdraw my labor. I don't like how things have been going. So I quit. I'm not cleaning anymore. They're all right with the filth, (laughs) right? So withdrawing and saying, I I quit, I abstain is not going to get you the outcome that you want to see. So you need to at first link up with your roommate who's all right, right? (laughs) They ain't the best, but they all right. And that's your first ally. That's your first comrade. That's your first recruit. And then thinking about what are the ways that we either neutralize the other two or bring or bring them along and bring them on board. I don't, again, I don't think that a passive approach is going to bring about the change that we want to seek. And so I'm actively looking for opportunities to pick up additional tools, to pick up additional co-conspirators, to pick up resources, to organize my people and organize our resources because we have a vision for a system that works for us that isn't extractive and takes and takes and takes and doesn't reinvest into us as people into our families into our businesses into the kind of communities that we want to live in so yes we absolutely encourage people while we are organizing while we are in these streets we are absolutely registering people to vote and encouraging them to use their vote as their voice and as a tool. I'm not taking nothing off the table in my quest for liberation. And that includes voting. I love that. I love that. Let's see. I have a quote here from our sister, the Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. She said, people don't participate not because they're ignorant and they don't know enough. It's because they know too much. They live it every day. She spoke about a deficit of trust in the system that transcends party and makes resisting voter suppression harder. Do you think there's a deficit of trust in your experience, in your work registering folks? Absolutely. And it's intentional. I think about the debate performance that we saw, uh, and it was a performance. And the thing that struck me like really powerfully is this is not someone who is trying to build a bigger we. He's not trying to build a bigger us. The goal was not to get people to understand that the past four years, he's been working hard in the interest of the American people. That was a performance by someone who absolutely knows that they cannot win by squaring up. And so they have to cheat that his goal is to shake faith in the system and in the process and relentlessly and consistently attack it to make people feel like resistance is futile to weaken your resolve so you can just take it. That was the goal. And that is a culmination of years of a strategy. Like, don't fight back. 
take it. It's the way that things always have been. You know, people are like, police been killing black men. Why y'all in the streets now? Who says that? <laughs> like, who does that? So, yes, there is a lack of trust in the process. And that is because that is a tactic of the people who are defenders of the status quo. I look at a state like Georgia, right? And people talk about the, you know, 250,000 votes that Trump won Georgia by. And there were a million people in Metro Atlanta, a million Black folks in Metro Atlanta who didn't vote. And I imagine that in addition to sort of the naked voter suppression, that there are a lot of people who took themselves out of the game because, you know, they believed that, you know, Clinton and Trump were the same or they believed that their vote doesn't matter, et cetera. But that is power that we are leaving on the table. So of course Georgia matters. Like, of course your vote matters. Of course your protests matter. All of these interventions are necessary and they're all really important. And it is a lie from the pits of hell to say that it doesn't. And the people who want you to believe that actually benefit when we don't have full, robust participation in our elections. So what do you say to folks who want to vote for a third party candidate because they believe that the Democrats and Republicans are just two versions of the same white supremacist system, two wings of the same bird? I mean, well, the New Georgia Party, we don't care who who you vote for. We want people to vote and we want black people and young people to be super voters who vote in every election. I would also just provide, you know, I think we also find ourselves in a position to be able to provide high quality information and analysis about candidates and their positions on issues that matter to young folks and issues that matter to black folks. But I want to talk to people about real stuff and I want to talk to them about the things that they care about. And that is what we lead with at the New Georgia Project. We lead with issues. There's the kind of conversation that you have in the rec room in your dorm sophomore year at three o'clock in the morning when you and your homies are talking about how you want to change the world. And then there's the conversation that we're talking about when people's lives are on the line and we are in this moment where 80% of the people that have been hospitalized in Georgia with COVID are Black. 50% of the people who've died due to COVID in Georgia are Black. The minimum wage in Georgia is $5.15, which is below the federal minimum wage of $7.25. That there haven't been any new nuclear power plants built anywhere in America in 30 years, and they're building two in Black neighborhoods, in Black communities in Georgia. And it's people who pay their Georgia power bill are the ones that are paying for it. There's a whole line on it that says nuclear cost recovery fee. So, I mean, yes, let's do the poli-sci debate about the role of political parties and the role of corporate influence. I'm definitely down for you, especially if we have some enhanced But I'm talking about people's lives right now. And I don't have the luxury of debating poli-sci 201 topics when we're trying to not only get free, but stay alive. I hear you. I hear you. So let's see. Tell me a little more about your organization. What is New Georgia Project? What do you all do? Uh, Why do you exist? New Georgia Project, we are a nonpartisan civic engagement organization based here in Georgia. I sit in Atlanta, but 
We're probably best known and most known for our large scale voter registration drives. We register voters 365 a year. We've helped almost half a million young people, people of color, register to vote in all 159 of Georgia's counties. And so we're really proud of that work because, you know, when a lot of people think about Georgia, they think it's uh, Atlanta and not Atlanta. <laughs> and, but the truth of the matter is that it's a beautifully diverse state with, you know, seven major cities and there's like multiple sort of political regions. You know, oftentimes when people talk about rural voters, it's code for white conservative. But again, Georgia frustrates that they're, you know, double digit counties in the state where the majority of the residents are Black, and most of those are rural counties. And so, yeah, our goal is to build super voters, right? Folks who vote in every election in which they're eligible. Um, and it, part of it is because we haven't found a better system than democracy <laughs> um, to figure out like how to spend our money collectively, how to make choices as a collective. And we want full participation for Black folks and young people, period. What are the participation rates right now, Black folks, compared to other groups? Through the roof. I feel like there's a lot that's been written about Black women and like the idea that they are the most engaged sort of demographic in our country. Black women vote at rates higher than everyone, including white men. But Black men are right there. Right. And I think that people sort of don't understand that and don't know that. And it's only turning up um, again. The Georgia Project, nonpartisan organization, want people to know that aggressively nonpartisan. And there is growing energy and enthusiasm because, again, of the work of NGP and groups like us to register people, to engage folks that not only are we recruiting candidates or the process has recruited candidates who come from our communities, but they also feel accountable to our communities, which is very new and very different. Question for you, to a point you just raised, you mentioned that it's often talked about how Black women vote at higher rates than anybody, but Black men voter participation um, is pretty much there. Why do you think that is? Uh, why, why do folks separate the two as opposed to saying the Black vote in general? Well, I mean, part of it is just a function of data, right? <laughs> and like, one, it's important to point out, because if you just did all Black voters and all white voters, it would look like Black voters are less engaged overall than white voters or Latinx voters, et cetera. So when you disaggregate by gender, I think it's it tells a different story. So one, I think it's part of a data story. But also two, I think that there are some people who see value in dividing our community by gender. And part of it is, okay, Bear with me. This is gonna sound. This is gonna sound like a long, winding metaphor, but bear with me. So we've been talking about misinformation and disinformation, and like how Black voters are like the number one targets for bad actors, particularly foreign bad actors, right? And so we talk about Russia, 2016, how they had the fake BLM Facebook group, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the truth of the matter is that Russia. And a lot of foreign actors have been using America's history of violent, racist, white supremacist treatment of its Black citizens as a wedge for quite some time. 
that there is, you know, proof, data, documents to support that this was a tactic in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, right? So the truth of the matter is that it exists, right? America does treat Black people poorly and has for quite some time. So what they have pointed to is real how they are using that information to affect the outcome of the elections or to push a certain narrative is what is problematic and what needs to be addressed. I see the same thing when we talk about like the differences between Black women's participation in elections and in Black men's participation. But yes, Black women vote at rates higher than any body in the country, but the people who use it as a wedge between Black men and Black women are the bad actors, and that needs to be addressed. Hmm. Now, that's interesting. Is that partisan as all, or is that a media thing? Who do you, What do you think is responsible for that? I think anybody who benefits from us beefing <laughs> and like where there isn't any unity. So in some instances, I think that it's for financial gain to keep it a buck, right? And some instances, I think it's partisan. In some instances, I think you got some woke activists who are on social media who think that feminism is at odds with racial solidarity. So the idea that, you know, we can't, like Black women can't be women and Black, like we have to choose to be Black and we don't have to organize around our gender and how gender is used, you know, against us to impact our pay, impact our health outcomes. Black maternal mortality is a real thing. And so people talk about, you know, what is being done to our sons and our brothers at the hands of the police. Can we also, not instead of, can we also talk about what's happening to our mamas, our aunts, and our sisters at the hands of the healthcare industry, at the hands of the medical profession, right? Like, these are all things that have an impact on our communities. And like people who say that we can't talk about more than one thing at a time, I'm looking at you funny. I'm, I'm suspicious. And let's be clear, there is, you know, in-group healing and organizing that has to happen. I forgot that there wasn't a single woman speaker at the March on Washington. I never will forget that. They brought Mahalia Jackson up there to gospel us uh, so, that, so that we could at least hear a woman's voice, but there was no woman speaker, despite the role that many women played in organizing and getting folks to the March on Washington, right? And so we are constantly working to heal those divisions, to heal those wounds, and to build a bigger we. I'm all about the bigger we, the bigger us. And so I tend to reject things that cause division for division's sake. And I'm often interrogating, like, who benefits? Like, who wins from this conversation? That's a good place to pause. More in a minute. With so many things pulling on your time, thanks for spending some of it with Black History Year. We're a community of hundreds of thousands of folks who believe that knowing our history makes us all stronger. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we saw that we had to take this into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people do five or 10 bucks a month, 
but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. Bringing it back to some of the efforts you mentioned to dissuade Black folks from participating or taking certain types of action. Let's take it to voter suppression. What are you most concerned about impacting this election in terms of voter suppression and, and what are people doing to stop it? The president gave a shout out kind of to a white supremacist group from the national debate stage and was about to go into a narrative basically about how they should be recruited to be poll watchers in places like Philadelphia. Like that's just all code. It's all code. What we know and we've known since June that the RNC plans to spend $20 million on lawsuits around vote by mail and absentee balloting that gets the um, states to stop doing it because it has been shown to increase people's participation. And it's one of the safest ways that people can vote while we're in the middle of a pandemic. And even though Atlanta is open, open, the pandemic is not over. We see blue mailboxes being ripped off the out of the ground in street corners all across the country. Mail sorting machines that sort tens of thousands of pieces of mail an hour being pulled out of regional processing centers. States refusing to provide prepaid postage. The Secretary of State in Georgia fighting us in court and losing around getting the absentee ballot receipt deadline to be moved to a postmarked by standard instead of what the standard was, which is if your ballot wasn't in the county board of elections office by 7 p.m. on election day, your vote didn't count. Super problematic in a place like Georgia. People think about Florida uh, with hurricane season, but we are deeply impacted. Folks in coastal Georgia, folks in South Georgia. And if you've ever had to run for your life in the middle of a hurricane, you ain't thinking about no ballot. And so there's mandatory evacuations and the suspension of mail service and COVID, right? So there's all of this stuff that has the potential to impact people's participation, not to mention the bad actors and the bad behaviors and the vote suppressors. So that's the thing that I'm worried about. But what I'm worried about is that people think that that is a permanent state of being. Like, don't you know that that is how they cheat, right? Because there are so many more of us because literally the path to victory in the White House, the path to control of the United States Senate, the path to figuring out what's going to happen with the Supreme Court runs through Black voters in Georgia. And so people giving up their power, thinking that they can't do anything about it, scares me when I know the truth. So, that's what scares me. Like folks don't recognize how powerful we are and will walk away from the table and hand over the W to vote suppressors. Is there a particular party that stands to benefit more from Black votes being suppressed? If so, what is that party and how do they, I think you laid out how they benefit, but let's identify who they are. I want to be very clear. In the marketplace of ideas and ideology, Nobody is buying what Republicans are selling. 
And the only way that they've been able to maintain this outsized influence on our country's politics and on our policymaking apparatuses is to cheat. That's it. That's it. That's it. Nobody's buying what they're selling. They're cheating. They're gerrymandering. They're cutting communities of color out. They're packing and cracking legislative districts. They're suppressing votes. They're purging people from the voter rolls. You know, listen, man, in 2018, we have polling locations that didn't open for hours. There's polling locations where they had voting machines and no power cords. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, if this was in any other country, we would be calling it a banana republic. The only way that they can hold on to power is if they cheat. And the only way that we can overcome them and, like, get folks in to write laws that benefit the whole, that benefit the weak, is to have overwhelming participation in our elections so that we can neutralize all of their shenanigans and then get back to work come January 21. The data shows that it might be an existential crisis for conservatives and specifically white folks who lean conservative. Like the demographics are changing in America, right? Have you considered that as a reason for the cheating that seems to be going on? Is it some of that? Is it something else? What are your thoughts on all that? If you've ever been in a relationship with somebody and it was coming towards an end and they knew it and started showing up and acting up. Or, or better example, if you have a coworker, a colleague that everybody knew was about to get fired and they knew that they were about to get fired. And so they still have supplies. <laughs> 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 and like people just going through the motions, but like on the low, they're stealing office supplies, coming to work mad late, leaving early, not giving up, just not caring at all. I feel like that's what we're seeing with a lot of people in the Republican Party. Like, they know they're about to get fired. They're still in office supplies. They check their pockets, Capitol Police, because they're stealing. Like, that's what they're doing. And it's, it's, we saw the mad rantings, the mad ravings of a person that has no country, that is losing the grip on reality, losing the grip on power. And it's not ideological. Like some folks don't believe a word that comes out of his mouth, but they have made tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, and in some cases, billions of dollars as a result of the tax cut, as a result of the economy in the mom, in the middle of this pandemic. I was reminded, I was in conversation with my dad the other day, I was like, how is it that he's able to have such loyalists? How is our president able to inspire such loyalty from people? He was like, those are not loyal. They're making bread. He was like, during, in Germany, right? Like with the Nazis, somebody had a contract to build the Nazi tanks. Hugo Boss had a contract to make the Nazi uniforms. Chemical companies that are alive today had a contract to make the gas that went into the gas chambers. So uh, they they didn't mind killing people because they were making money off of it. And that is what we are seeing in our country today. Mm. Let's talk about money a little more, right? So there's, I think, some Black folks that 
I've heard with the same beliefs, right? They they believe the narrative that unemployment for black folks was the lowest in history because of Trump. They believe that black folks are in a better economic position because of Trump. Do you have any any thoughts on that that you'd like to share? Here's why I'm offended by the question. Not because of you, but I'm offended by the question because like these things are knowable, right? Like there are facts. You can't just lie and say unemployment is the lowest that it's ever been in history. Like you can't do that. These things are knowable. They are discoverable. And if we are moving towards a world where we are arguing and debating over facts, we in trouble. We are in so much trouble. It's not true. And Black people who spout that are trafficking in right-wing talking points. Mm. I don't know what to say to you, bro. Trafficking is a powerful word, but I appreciate you using that. <laughs> right. You out uh, here moving <laughs> right-wing talking points. The trap that jumping with right-wing talking points. Absolutely. <laughs> so let's focus a little more on voter suppression. You know, it's happening. It historically has happened and is happening in Georgia for sure and obviously around the country. So... Are you able to speak to some of the most common tactics um, used nationwide that our folks should be on the the lookout for um, this election season? Misinformation and disinformation, lies, like wrapped around like a little bitty kernel of truth is an effective suppression tactic. And I think that anybody who is under the sound of our voice can be a powerful tool in neutralizing and combating that. Um, Listen, they can put all the muscle behind and boosting an ad on Instagram or on Twitter, but they don't have access to the group chat, right? You can be a tool of reliable information. You can be a source to combat information. You can give the game to the people that you love, people that you are in community with. Like I said, they might be able to sow the seeds of mistrust and distrust on public platforms, but they don't have access to the group chat. And so that is where we are organizing. You're organizing with your friends, your family, and people who listen to you. There's so many things that we can do to combat voter, suppre- uh, voter suppression, and that's definitely one of them. I think that folks can vote early. If you know you don't trust the mail system, or if you are born in 2002 and you are voting for the first time in your elections, and you're like, "What is the stamp?" Go vote early in person. That is an option in a lot of our states, and it's certainly an option in Georgia. I think that we need to overwhelm the system with participation so that we can neutralize again the impact of these tactics that are designed to shrink the electorate and to keep the number of people who are making decisions small. What you don't want to do is find out that you're purged on election day Mm. after you've been waiting in line for two hours, waiting in line for three hours, and you get up to Miss Mabel with your ID, and she says, I don't see you on the vocal rolls, baby. And now you're mad. (laughs) Talk to us. um, Define for our audience. um, Shout out to the Miss Mabels. Shout out to Miss Mabel, for sure. being purged from the voter rolls. Just tell us what that means, how folks can double check, make sure that everything's on the up and up. So most secretaries of state across the country have a way to check your status to make sure that you are a registered voter. And so in Georgia, it's called the My Voter page. Um, But again, there's a similar platform in states all across the country. And so unfortunately, 
the um, Voting Rights Act allows for states to do what's called list maintenance, basically the clean up the list, right? People die, people move out of state, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. States need to have a way to keep the list of registered voters sort of clean. The problem is that in states like Georgia, but several other states around the country, people take that to the extreme, purging people off the voter rolls. So in Georgia, if they send a piece of mail to your house and you don't reply, they consider you to be an inactive voter. Or if you, if you haven't voted in two elections, that they consider you an inactive voter in two federal elections, I should say. They consider you an inactive voter. So you ain't voted in 16 because you ain't care. You didn't vote in 18 because you didn't care. Now you're on an inactive list and they sent a piece of mail to your house and you didn't reply because it looked like a regular white envelope and there's nothing identifying it on the outside. That person can be purged from the voter rolls. So Georgia has a use it or lose it system that makes it easy for them to kick people off the voter rolls. And when you go back to the 2018 gubernatorial election, where there were, at that time, up to like 1.7 million people that have been kicked off of Georgia's voter rolls. So like, we're super proud of the almost half a million people that we've registered to vote just in Georgia and added half a million new voters to the voter rolls. But it is in the context of 1.7 million people getting purged. So when we talk about voter suppression again, I think the idea is that, you know, folks have a very violent, very antiquated image in their mind when the truth of the matter is that they're using data, they're using culture as ways to purge the voter rolls and kick people off and make it difficult for folks to vote. And if you've ever voted in person, you know, there's your neighbors are there, right? Your community is there. So having waited in line for multiple hours to finally get to the front of the line and then be told, I'm sorry, ma'am, I'm sorry, sir, you're not a registered voter in front of your neighbors is a terrible feeling. And as someone who, who works to try to get people to vote once, it's such a hill to overcome, to get people back, to get over the embarrassment, to let folks know that it's not their fault. That's the sneaky, that's the pernicious, that's the low down stuff that they do to try to not only make it difficult for people to participate, but for make, to make it so that people think it's not even worth it to try. Mm. So speaking of those type of tactics that make people think it's not worth it to try and speaking of the 2018 gubernatorial election in Georgia I have a quote from Stacey Abrams who I believe is the founder of New Georgia Project right she is great so uh, in her book lead from the outside she wrote when we doubt ourselves into inaction that paralysis becomes a habit rejecting opportunity is on autopilot so we tend to stand still and watch others achieve what we could have had. Um, so this sounds like it could work on two levels. It's very personal and as a community. Um, what paralysis do you see in the Black community that we need to overcome as it relates to all this? First of all, Stacey's brilliant. So thank you for pulling that passage. You were reading, I was hearing, uh, you missed 100% of the shots you don't take. That you know, being paralyzed by fear is not, you know, in our best interest ever, right? So shoot your shot. 
What vision do you have for our communities? What vision do you have for your babies? What vision do you have for yourself? Every time we sit back, we say this will never happen. No one would ever vote for me. I have this idea. Like every time that that happens and you take yourself out of the game, you are being paralyzed by fear and denying yourself the opportunities to build a better world, to, you know, run for office and represent your community uh, on the school board. There are tons of ways that people take themselves out of the game all the time. I think that Black people, because of the abuse that we have had to suffer um, in this country. I think folks thought that Stacey's candidacy was too far out of reach, right? They are never gonna vote for a black woman. And it wasn't true. In the primaries, in the 2018 gubernatorial primary, she won 76% of the vote. That's a molly whopping, right? Like, that's when, if you're playing Little League, that's like, all right, like, skunk, <laughs> just call just it. Skunk. <laughs> just call it. Come back in, get your orange slice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? And had she had she bought into the narrative that Georgia wasn't ready, that America has never had a black woman governor, right? She would have taken herself out of the game. So you seem very um, optimistic, despite the fact that you you know know all of the the challenges that are um, against us. Would you agree with that? You're pretty optimistic. Yeah, because we are in a position to win, and. The only way that they can win is by cheating and convincing us that we're coming from behind. Mm, those are some solid words to end on. I really appreciate your time and say, is there anything else you want to leave us with before we hop off today? Yeah, I would say your vote is not a gift to the candidate. Your vote is the thing that you do for the people that you love, for yourself and the people that you love, for your squad, for your community. So you're not giving a candidate X a gift by voting. You are saying, this is what I want for myself and my loved ones. And I'm trying to find somebody who I can negotiate with, who I can work with on the other side of the table, on the other side of that phone call. And I want folks to have real clarity about that, particularly in this moment. All right, all right. So just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. You know, at Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value the work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people do about five or 10 bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. Special thanks to Detroit's Motor City Woman Studio and Andrea Daniel. The Black History Year production team includes Tariq Alani, Patrick Sanders, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Shonda Buchanan, Eskadar Getahoon, 
Leslie Taylor Grover, Abney Jones, Aquia Tay, Darren Wallace, and our producer, Sydney Smith. For Limited House, our producers are Jessica Rue France and Sasha Kai Parker, who also edits the podcast. Black History Year's executive producers are Julian Walker for Push Black and Michael L. Sesser for Lemon House. I'm Jay for Push Black. Thanks for checking us out. Peace. <laughs>